from the Haunted Attraction Network, I'm Philip, and this is our weekly episode of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. This week, we explore stories about how attractions keep the guests flowing. From combating low staffing to setting attendance records, half a billion dollar renovations, and new seasons of fun, this week we're showing the resilience of attractions. Enjoy the show. From our studios in Los Angeles and Tampa, this is Green Tech Theme Park in 30. I'm Philip, and I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Scott Swenson. Hello, Scott. Hey, everybody. How you doing? How are you, Philip? Well, uh, I am here, and I am uh, surviving. I can't believe it's already halfway through January. It seems like everything has just been going far too quickly. Tell me about it. Yeah, everything's been been just zipping along. And uh, as you know, but I don't know whether everybody else does, I had originally had a little vacation planned. Uh, it was supposed to start today, but postponed it due to, uh, you know, health concerns and that sort of thing. So um, the nice thing is for this coming week, I don't have a ton of deadlines that I have to hit. So um, I, I'm hoping that I can play catch up this week. That's my goal. Ooh. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, I guess, Yeah. I guess speaking of deadlines, question mark, is that a good trans? I don't know. Um, so the little bit of housekeeping It's, it's coming as good up as here. it's going to get. Um, so let's just... Uh... <laughs> so there is a haunted attraction benchmark survey that was released. This is a collaboration between myself and the Haunted Attraction Association. It is the first benchmark survey that there has really ever been done on, on this level in the haunted attraction industry. And it's it's... Very crucial because benchmark surveys are just are just, as you know, Scott. You know they're critical not just for lobbying and for understanding the size of the industry, but also for helping operators make operational decisions. And so, I just I'm making the announcement that we need attractions. If you do anything with Halloween, we need you to please fill the survey out. It's kind of open to members and non-members, and we are collecting it for the next three, roughly three weeks. We're collecting the data, and we'll put it out. You know, once we compile it all and put it all together, then we'll publish it out for everyone to be able to use. So, but we do need a lot of people. So, if anyone listening is involved in Halloween and you have, if you're interested, please uh, go to the link in the episode description to fill it out. That's great. Yeah, and and again, not just this is not just for people. And let me just clarify this for everybody: this is not just for people who own haunted houses that run independently. Um, if you have an attraction and you do a haunt overlay or you do a haunt, even a, a family friendly Halloween season, um, I think it is important to include all of that information um, into this benchmark survey because in order for a benchmark survey to be um, detailed, accurate, multi leveled, multifaceted, it has to have respondents from uh, various different subgenres of the the Halloween industry. So uh, it I, I'm sure it, you know won't it, you can take as much or as little time with it as you like. I'm sure that it's a if I know Philip, because I haven't taken the survey, but if I know Philip, it's pretty in depth. But um, but the idea is this information can then be utilized by people throughout the industry, and what is good for the industry is good for each and every one of us in it. So uh, it, even if you don't think of yourself as well, I'm not really a a haunted attraction, um, but you are a um, an FEC that that does a Halloween event. Check it out, check it out, and and share yes. that information because yes. you know this information is not going to any information you share is not going to be taken and used against you. It's not going to help your competition. What it's going to do is to contribute to a document that will help you in the long run. So take advantage of it. That's correct. 
And that's a good point, Scott. It is anonymous. It's an anonymous uh, survey. And we did adjust some of the questions so that you're not entering any proprietary numbers. We're, we're trying to keep things like percentages, you know, like what percentage of your budget is on staffing and et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're trying to keep it so that there, you won't have to disclose any uh, proprietary information and we're keeping it anonymous and the data is limited to three people who are under NDAs and the raw data is will be destroyed. So even any sort of IP records or any of that, don't worry about any of that. It'll all be destroyed. We're only going to use the data publicly in the aggregate. So you're only going to see like the full trend published publicly and all the other data will be destroyed and handled by only a select amount of people that are under NDAs. So we, t- we, we do take the confidentiality piece of this uh, very seriously. And there's also the Hunter Action Association gathered funds to do a giveaway. So there's a $250 Amazon gift card giveaway that you can opt in to be entered into. But uh, you don't have to opt into that. So you could keep your identity completely removed. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Sounds like a great, uh, great survey. Ah. All righty. Well, let's let's dig in here. I think the the biggest news from this week all kind of concerns staffing and inflation, which is really no surprise. Twenty one, uh, the largest one here. Uh, of course, this is big news, but the the quote I'm going to read is actually from the IAPA public relations statement, and it is of course concerning the uh, temporary standard enforcement. So the Supreme Court voted six to three that it will not allow the occupational safety uh, not allow OSHA. Uh, to put their emergency temporary standard in place. The ETS requires workers or companies 100 or more employees to be fully vaccinated or tested. So I'm sure you all heard, of course, that came through. That was big news this week where that's not going to be enforced. Uh, In other words, your organization is no longer obligated to comply with the OSHA mandate by their published compliance dates. And additionally to that, of course, IAPA is also pushing Congress to release additional H-2B visas. They stated that we recognize that finding and retaining workers will continue to be a fundamental challenge for IAPA members well into 2022 and beyond. That is definitely an understatement. We also recognize that executive and legislative leaders need to address the workforce situation in a holistic manner to address the severity of the workforce problem. For these reasons, supporting the advancement and of beneficial workforce development policies remains IAPA's top legislative and regulatory priority. Oof. Yeah, I was going to say there's a whole bunch of words there. Uh, basically, it's hard to find people to work, and uh, and IAPA and uh, obviously the Supreme Court want to do whatever they can to make it easier. Um, I, I think the interesting thing for me is because I've always been such a a pro-vax person um, that yeah. there on the surface this is a bit of a sting. It's it's a bit of a ugh, ouch. However. When I, when you start to you know we all learn and we've said from the from the get go this pandemic is not the, the facts are are constantly in a state of discovery we are learning new things at all times and just on a personal level I've had so very many people who are fully vaxxed who continue to be fully masked um, people like myself who are having breakthrough um, who are breaking through and testing positive so I think what yeah. it does really is kind of plays into something that I've kind of believed since the get-go, and that is we're going to have to continue to figure out how to live with as opposed to eradicate um, this this situation uh, and these health issues. You know, we can't, shutting down um, 
in extreme cases, may still be necessary. But I think at this point, we need to figure out how can we live with this disease because it doesn't seem to be, you know, really going anywhere. It's ebbed and flowed. Um, there are even some studies that uh, have said, and, and, and of, course, of course, Philip is going to have a coronary because I don't have the exact data in front of me, but there are some studies that, that have suggested that everyone's going to get it. It's just going to happen. And, you know, um, I've seen that reported in, in the, the television news media. And so, again, is that true? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to give full disclosure. I don't know whether that's actually going to be the case. But what we need to do then is continue to, if we're going to, to not require everyone to be vaccinated, um, is to continue to take responsibility for our own health. Um, it kind of puts, us ba- puts it back in our laps. You know, um, I've, I've now started because very early on, I decided which organizations I was going to follow their recommendations. So I have now shifted to N95 masks when I'm out, and I'm actually double masked most of the time. Um, I realize that this probably protects others more than it protects me, but it also reduces the spread. Um, I I yeah. also continue to um, physically distance whenever possible, and I just am continuing to take responsibility for myself based on what I, I mean. Obviously, I just changed my vacation plans um, because I I wanted to make certain that I wasn't contributing to the problem, and I was continuing to contribute to the solution. Um, what I don't what I want to make sure people understand in this little rant is just because OSHA can't, uh, enforce this, this, uh, this policy. Um, I, I, that does not mean that it's not real. That does not mean that the problem is over. That does not mean that the, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be beneficial. It means that in order to find balance within the world of the pandemic, this is something that is necessary. Well, that's a great segue, uh, balance and, of course, attractions, figuring out how to deal with this. Uh, Of course, a lot of attractions are now dealing with a lot of their employees getting sick, of course, if they're unvaccinated especially, and that is making the staff issues even worse (laughs) right now. Um, It's like, thank goodness we got through Christmas, you know, and and now there's a little bit less uh, demand on attractions, but still, uh, attractions are having difficulty staffing. And our next story is the Smithsonian has reduced their hours at zoo and their museums because of COVID-related staff shortages. The Smithsonian Museums Zoo in Washington, D.C., struggling with staffing shortages. The Smithsonian Institute has decided to cut operation, operating hours at the National Zoo and several of its museums in Washington, D.C. due to ongoing staffing shortages. The zoo, along with the Natural Museum of African American History and Culture, the National Museum of American History, and National Museum of Natural History, will open five days a week, while the National Portrait Gallery and five other museums will only operate four days, and the National Museum of African Art will only operate every Saturday and Sunday, which is, that's, that's quite, uh, you know, a reduction for some of those places, uh, especially important cultural institutions. And not only that, of course, but everyone has already started so so kind of like amid this surge obviously which that is causing that for there to be overall less staff available amid all of this we now have a slew of attractions that have announced that they are hiring right now to get a jump on their seasons that includes king's island who has 5000 jobs opening for their 50th anniversary all of them starting at $15 by the way plus announcements from six flags and uh, you know, a sl- just a slew of other attractions. So, yikes. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the the whole idea of 
<coughs> excuse me, being able to um, being able to enforce vaccinations when there is such a huge demand. I mean, five thousand jobs. Yikes. I mean, that's that's gigantic. Yeah. But one of yeah. the things that I think employers have to recognize is even though they are not required to um, to to meet with this standard, uh, one thing that is is important to recognize is in a in a study from um, it's at Arizona, Arizona edu news Arizona edu. Um, they said the risk of COVID. Additionally, the risk of COVID nineteen with an accompanying fever was fifty eight percent lower for vaccinated participants who reported two fewer days sick in bed on average and an overall length of illness that was six days shorter than the unvaccinated people. So, if you are concerned that you're not going to be able to fill those five thousand jobs or uh, you don't want to reduce your hours. By encouraging your staff um, to be to be vaccinated, <coughs> you are actually helping your own uh, staffing issues. Because if people do get sick, it means that if they are vaccinated, they'll be back quicker and they'll be feeling better sooner. So yes. uh, I, I think that is another factor that has to play in here. Um, and I, and I think it's you know I, I think it's I think it's important. And part of the reason I think that this is so important is. This staffing, especially in this industry, is uh, is crucial because numbers continue to grow. Um, guests, there are more and more guests who are coming out and trying to experience these things. And that's being reflected not only in pricing. For example, Cedar Point has raised their ticket price to $85 at the gate for the 2022 season which is, uh, I believe, what, a 13% increase, something like that? Um, the new gate yep, yeah, price marks a $10 increase um, compared to last year. The new gate price is listed at $85, which is a $10 increase from last year. And five years ago, the ticket prices at the gate were $67. So just like we've reported with Disney, Cedar, uh, Cedar Point has also recognized the demand is higher, so they can raise prices. Um and we've seen, even in 2021, and this is one that's very near and dear to my heart because not only are they a client, but they're also um, about five blocks from my house, um, Zoo Tampa shattered attendance records in 2021 uh, with more than 1.2 million visitors. It claims to be Florida's most popular cultural institution. The zoo's previous attendance record was, uh, what is it, 991,351 in 2016. So well before the pandemic. Um, oh. uh, and this comes from uh, uh, tampabay.com. Tampabay.com. This has been published, this number has been published everywhere. So it's not like I'm, I'm sharing any proprietary information here. But what I've discovered in actually walking through the zoo, uh, both as a guest and as an outside contractor, is it is an outdoor experience, primarily outdoor experience, that guests feel very comfortable bringing their children to. And Philip, I know you've been to a lot of the seasonal events there. And mm -hmm. I, I think that um, I think that they have really, speaking of seasonal events, they've really embraced this opportunity to encourage guests to come more than just once a year. You know, that's the thing that happens with these nonprofits and is continuing to happen with these nonprofits. You get these members who are uh, in their heart of hearts, truly committed to the conservation message that they're um, putting out there. But they will only come maybe once or twice per year. When you do seasonal events, it gives them another reason to come out, be reminded of the importance of the conservation message, <clears throat> excuse me, and then also put additional money into the coffers 
which helps pay for the conservation message. So I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, because Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay is a great example of a, uh, a nonprofit organization that has a, we'll call it a primary, their primary mission is, is not necessarily, um, entertainment like a, a, a theme park or a water park might be they're they're truly committed to conservation but they also recognize that in order to get that conservation message out there not only in front of people's eyes but also to pay for it um, utilizing seasonal events is a great way to elevate their attendance and get you know clicks on the turnstile so people can come in and see the incredible work that they actually do yes I'm glad you agree. <laughs> well, I, I I totally agree, and and I, I think uh, it, it really we've been talking about this for so long about the value that seasonal events really bring to everybody. You know, I think it we've we we started to see it, of course, with with knots and and with how successful it was in in that theme park setting. Of course, them being like the first you know really uh, large Halloween event, and then of course it ran over, but. I definitely agree there's uh, seasonal events can exist at places where their mission is conservation. And I think sometimes you, you get some resistance or I've seen resistance with that, uh, but it, they can definitely coexist. And from my reporting and, and from my personal experience at these events, I thought, as of course I've mentioned, they were fantastic, but not just that they were fantastic, but that they also, their reservations have sold out. You know, there was a few times where I was looking to get tickets to uh, particular nights for Halloween and the reservations were completely sold out. And, you know, I, I'm just saying, I, I, I never really have a problem getting a day ticket <laughs> to, to any uh, cultural institution, but uh, I did have a problem getting the uh, tickets to Christmas and Halloween on certain dates that they were completely sold out. So that just tells me that the, the popularity really should be underscored. Well, and I think it's I think it's important to recognize. I mean, going to another client of mine, which is the the Florida Aquarium, um, which by the way has just uh, after they put me on pause for a couple of years because of uh, of the pandemic, and now they're looking to keep working, and they have brought me back into the fold again. And their mission statement was actually changed several years ago, long before the pandemic, um, to include the phrase to educate and to entertain and educate. They actually put entertain first, and they clearly are embracing the fact that fun is not the enemy of fact. And with family, a family audience, the more fun you can have, the more fact the the guests or the participants will remember. So uh, by by making that meld, you, you don't have to fight between you know education and entertainment. You can utilize them together, and and I think Zoo Tampa is a perfect example of of how they've done that and utilized that to to actually have a great year um, when, you know, they've been in such a slump because of things completely beyond their control. Yeah. Well, that's another great segue uh, into an, our next big story here, which is the Shed Aquarium. And it's ramping up for centennial celebrations with a half a billion dollar investment. Uh, so th this is a very large story, uh, and it's, it hits on the points that Scott just mentioned about melding of all of that. And uh, it's basically, it's an eight-year plan ramping up to their 100th anniversary in 2030. And it's half a billion dollar investment. And the whole plan has not been released, but there's a, a great article in Impark Magazine that kind of outlines the strategy. And 
I'm not going to read <laughs> like too much from it b- because it, it's very large and you should go look at it. I just, there is a few lines in particular that I wrote down that I thought were very interesting. And I want to just share some of my thoughts. Um, the first is their focus on community space. A- and they state here that the technology advanced flexible space will serve as a launch pad, increasing the amount of existing classroom space to increase the total number of students engaged from 170,000 to 230,000 annually and provide multiple areas and more opportunities for Chicago communities to gather, engage, and connect. And what I think is so interesting about that is just that they're, they're, they're really focusing on not just the students, but also on community space for discussion and talking about how they, to reach in the communities, to gather, engage, and connect with the animals and to have discussions. And I think that's um, just very interesting that there's that, a, a big focus on, I guess, what you would call like grassroots kind of conservation activism and discussions in the community. And one thing I want to make sure, I want to just reinforce that because in in the phrase that you were reading, there's three, three words at the tail end of this phrase that I think are super important. Um, uh, encouraging the uh, uh, providing more opportunities to Chicago communities to gather, engage, and connect with animals, scientists, and here's the big one: each other, because they're recognizing that yeah. we are lacking that, and there is a whole generation of young people who have missed out on those really formative years in school to be able to engage with each other, and um, I also want to point correct. out that from a financial standpoint. From a financial standpoint, creating those spaces where you can engage with each other can drive revenue. It can drive revenue through rental of these spaces. You can create an opportunity to, um, you know, being in Chicago. First of all, I have to be totally transparent. Shed Aquarium is not a client of mine. I've never worked for them, but I've grown up in that aquarium. I'm from Chicago. Um, I have the, the shed aquarium was always my absolute favorite stop as a kid. And they have grown by leaps and bounds since I was young. And I am so excited to see the, uh, not only the fact that they are creating um, for their 100th anniversary this, this great expansion, but it's, they're, they're, it looks like they're doing it in the right way. And now we'll find out over the next eight years, but it looks like they're doing it in exactly the right way. Um, <clears throat> but I just love the fact that they keep, that they, they, they keep the, in, the intent of the public space, um, the public space issue in the forefront. Because if you think about it, going back through their history, yeah. um, the, the Shedd Aquarium was actually created for one of the uh, one of the, the World's Fairs. So it was a public space. It was designed to be a place for people to gather. Oh, by the way, there's a bunch of cool fish. I mean, that's kind of the way it was. So they're keeping that focused while continuing to reinforce their ongoing and growing conservation messages. So I think that's great. Yeah. No, and, and I think to your point, that is something that, that is very needed right now. And I think we, well, I don't know, it, it's just good to be reminded that that, that really is a, a large purpose uh, of so many of our attractions is to create a gathering space, to build empathy, mm-hmm. to have people be alongside each other. It doesn't matter whether, it, you know, it doesn't have to be um, you know, like, a, like a public aquarium like this or like the Sasonian places. You know, it can be the zoo, it can be, any of the theme parks or other attractions we have, it, these are all places to gather people together mm-hmm. and to learn about cultures. So, well, and they're also going to use these spaces. And uh, they, the next part I thought was, yeah. no, go right ahead. I was going to dive mm-hmm. into. Go right ahead. 
Well, okay. Yes, I was going to say that the next piece that was interesting is that they kind of shared their attendance goals here. They intend to grow attendance up to 2.3 million guests annually, which is a, well, that, that that's a big leap. You know, we, we just talked about the Zoo Tampa and them being uh, maxed out even on a lot of their seasonal events and only reaching 1.2. And this is like 2.3, which is a very large, very large uh, expansion. Uh, they also mentioned a, a big amount of digital investment and in kind of digital experiences, but they didn't say what they were, but it was just uh, interesting to see that. And then the, the last part here that was, I thought was very interesting as well, when they're talking about their subcontracting to award the bid packages, they're making sure to target diverse groups of people. So at least 20% and 6% MBE, WBE vendors, 50% of total on-site labor work hours to Chicago residents, and 25% of on-site labor work hours to minority and female workers. Additionally, SHED has also committed to ensuring hundreds of thousands of dollars go directly into the pockets of nearby Chicagoans, creating greater economic mobility and benefit for communities closest to the museum campus, which I think that is brilliant and also admirable and kind of also just reinforces the concept of they're wanting to bring diverse groups of people kind of like to the table uh, for even for just putting the attraction together. Yeah, it's and and for those of you who don't know where the Shed Aquarium is in Chicago, um, if you've never been there or you haven't, you know, had the opportunity to look at a map and go, oh, there it is. Um, it is on the lake and it is at the it's right off of Lakeshore Drive, which is the the main road that drives up and down along the lake. It is uh it's in, I mean, it's in the city. It is an urban environment. And I love the fact that they want to benefit the communities closest to the museum campus because that those areas um, have had, they've been in a state of flux over the years. And it is great to see that, uh, that they want to reinvest in their own front yard, really, because, you know, the museum campus is, is the Adler Planetarium, the Shedd Aquarium and the Field Museum. Um, and they're all there, and they have they've made these great connections over the years, both um, as organizations and physically. And now they're they're spreading out from that to put put more and more investment back into the communities that support their uh, their core location, which I think is great. Oh, well. The one thing they did not mention in here at all, which is not a surprise, but they didn't mention any sort of uh, seasonal activations or seasons of fun or whatnot, which, you know, as we talked about, that's that's definitely not the the mission, you know, that uh, conservation-minded attractions usually lead with. Uh, so uh, no surprise. But there are other seasonal events that, uh, of course, other attractions have been highlighting as we kind of get into January season. Shanghai Disney has announced a month-long Lunar New Year celebration. And some of the highlights I thought were interesting from that one is that this year they're featuring Tigger for Year of the Tiger, and there's a whole tiger dance. Uh, and I, I, just, I just like that because it's um, they've actually developed a costume and a character. It, it, it's like original programming they have mm -hmm. developed for this year being near the tiger, which is not something that Disney always does. You know, sometimes uh, they just kind of will, will recycle assets, uh, you know, like Mickey in Lunar New Year Red, you know, and that's kind of the, the thing. Um, and then, of course, we have other announcements. We have Bush Gardens that's already started their Mardi Gras celebration. Uh, you have Universal 
which hasn't started their Mardi Gras yet in Orlando, but they released their concert schedule at SeaWorld San Antonio has already started. And then, of course, let's not forget Pirate Fest weekends uh, at Legoland Resort, which starts next week. Yeah, again, I think it's it's cool to see that there are um, more and more theme parks, which I think are leading the way, more and more theme parks who are um, reaching out to fill that void in uh, the beginning part of the first quarter. Um, you know, I, I think that we, whenever we talk about, especially when it's Philip and I, just because of our backgrounds, <clears throat> whenever we talk about seasonal events, we lead with Halloween. And I think that's because that is the low-hanging fruit when it comes to generating revenue. That is the the gateway drug of seasonal yes. events. Um, shortly after that is Christmas. And then usually the next one to come up is some sort of summer event, especially in environments that have um, multiple weather changes throughout the course of the year. Um, the trickier one, and I'm, I am, I will fully admit it has been difficult for me as well. The trickier one is to find those, those first quarter events, um, because people are still reeling from the Christmas, uh, winter holidays. Um, and they're also, there isn't really a strong, um, a, a strong holiday reason to, to really dive in, um, in the in in January and February, with the exception of Valentine's Day, and I know that more and more people are trying to do Valentine's Day, um, so I, I think that's something that can definitely be yeah. uh, explored. What what I thought was uh, most interesting about kind of looking at these announcements is just like you mentioned, it's it's wholly different from the Christmas and the Halloween seasons. It, it is you know it is newer, but. You know, th these are not even the same date runs. You know, the, the dates are all over the place. And also, you know, some people are doing Chinese New Year and some people are doing like pirates. Some people are doing, like you mentioned, the comedy stuff at, at Zoo Tampa uh, in our pre-show. And then some, you know, then uh, we have this like Mardi Gras celebration um, that's, you know, at, at, at the Universal Properties and some of the SeaWorld uh, or SeaWorld Properties. It's just, um, it's kind of like all over the place. And, and really none of the, theme parks are doing Valentine's Day, of course, because Valentine's Day, you can't really stretch into like a month long mm -hmm. celebration. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the more the problem is it's more like it's a weekend thing. It's not a thing. But then since it's a weekend thing, you get the smaller attractions that can capitalize on it more because it's a weekend thing. So they can do their weekend event. So it's, it's just a, that's what I found fascinating about it is to just see the approach that everyone is taking and really just how different it is. And even the time ranges are so different. Well, and I think they're also looking at what is their core brand and what are their core assets and which, um, which, uh, celebration can we tie into, uh, you know, I think Tigger for, for year of the tiger. Perfect. That's perfect. They're taking one of their core assets and tying it to a seasonal event. Um, Mardi Gras for both Busch Gardens and Universal makes total sense because, again, it's something that is celebrated in this quarter of the country. Uh, you know, Florida isn't exactly in Mardi Gras territory, but um, it is something that is is recognizable to us. And uh, and of course, I, the the idea of uh, doing pirates at Legoland. Legoland has uh, they're a huge pirate faction in their model citizens. So there's a whole uh, pirate faction within the Lego yeah. brand and within the Lego IP. 
Well, you know, uh, the season has come now for us to say goodbye for the week because we are out of time. And uh, on behalf of Philip Hernandez with Gantam Lighting and the Haunted Attraction Network and myself, Scott Swenson, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. Please encourage everybody you know to uh, to tag in and, and listen to what we have to say if you think they'd be interested. And uh, until next week, we'll see you. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.